this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with selections from Landowska on Music, written by Wanda Landowska, collected, edited, and translated by Denise Ristu, assisted by Robert Hawkins, and published in 1964 by Stein and Day Publishers. Part 3, Chapter 3, The Making of an Interpreter About Genius and Gifts An interpreter must know how to arouse expectation and then satisfy it. Genius must go beyond expectation. It must exalt it. A musical form bears in itself the rigidity of a mold. Genius escapes this tyranny. Thus, in exalting the fugue form, as in the art of fugue, Bach surpasses it and soars above the fugue itself. Cimarosa's overture to Il Matrimonio Segreto is empty. It merely tramples from tonic to dominant and vice versa. What is the difference between this procedure, as used by Cimarosa, devoid of genius, and that used by Mozart or Haydn? Mozart was of a flighty disposition, and yet what touching sincerity there is in the aria in which the countess sings, Give me back my spouse. Is it because he understood, through personal experience, the sorrow of a forsaken lover? Or is it simply the strength of genius which does not need the actual experience of a feeling to be able to depict it truthfully, or even more, to describe divinely the opposite of his own nature? A genius has his own ways, as genius dictates to him. And after what he does, someone establishes laws and founds a school. But to understand the evolution of an art, the character of a period, or an aesthetic transition, one should bear clearly in mind that creative geniuses do not spring up like supernatural phenomena in isolation and out of touch with their contemporaries. On the contrary, the whole is held together organically, and one is explained by the other. Sometimes nature provides us lavishly with gifts, yet we should know how to deal with them. We should be our own manager. I often think about what one calls too casually the innate physical aptitudes of a musician, those aptitudes which usually serve him prodigiously well. It is recognized that the conformation of the palate, tongue, and lips are very important for wood players. Everyone agrees that some singers have their own peculiarities in the attack of a note, in their way of beating a trill, in portamenti, etc. These peculiarities, theirs alone, cannot, of course, be imitated, because they result from a physiological complex. 
The same individuality applies to violinists, guitarists, lute and keyboard players of any kind for which the individual makeup of the fingers and an innate rapidity of reflexes play an immense role. Chopin provides a marvelous illustration of this. As everyone knows, he was not strongly built and apparently did not possess the kind of technique others need to master his works. Yet all of his contemporaries agree in saying that no other pianist could obtain such fulgurant effects in some of his etudes and polonaises. Certain physical conformations are predestined. Look at Couperin's portrait, his full lips and his fleshy hands. It is obvious that his fingers, with their sensuous padded tips, must have produced a mellow touch, his alone, which must have done marvels in Les Longueurs Tendres, to quote but one example. Compare this face and these hands to those of Rameau. Emaciated, Rameau had long thin fingers. The exorbitant intervals which abound in his harpsichord pieces are a resultant demonstration of his conformation. These peculiarities, or inborn gifts, are more than just physical dispositions. A thorough study of these aptitudes would lead to the discovery of their mysterious source. Why do Brazil and Argentina produce born pianists, Holland flutists, Russia, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary violinists? Creative artists in their embryonic stage already bear an indescribable imprint, a kind of destiny they cannot escape. About Teaching What an abyss there is between the perfect happiness we experience in reading a score of ancient music and the sickly feeling which seizes us when we hear the same work performed by musicians untrained for this music. Each one of them expresses a personal opinion about dotted notes, triplets, rests, etc. Listen only to a fugue subject phrased in a certain manner, and to its answer phrased in an absolutely different way. Does not that sound like the ironic raillery of a chatterbox making fun of a neighbor? And what about the trills realized sometimes on, sometimes before the beat, starting on the main note, more often than not, and so forth. All of it is proof that these musicians suffer from the insecurity of those who grope their way in the darkness of ignorance. We would be wrong in blaming them. It is almost impossible for a musician busy at learning all the general repertoire to study by himself the principles of interpretation of music of the past. He lacks the musicological basis, and modern editions often contradictory on essential matters, only increases confusion. Thus a musician who is attracted to the music of the past is also beset by doubts because he is not armed with the knowledge indispensable to approaching this music. How can he be helped? It is a grave error to believe that only those who wish to specialize should undertake a thorough study of the music of the past, the works of the great contrapuntists constitute substantial nourishment. In fact, it is the only one that really counts for our brains and fingers. 
A pianist who has assimilated a polyphonic culture will move about with much greater ease among the impetuous waves of romantic music. By developing our sense of time values and their reciprocal rapport, and by giving us the notion of space, contrapuntal writing leads us to the perception of balance. The mystery of tempo, which is the life or death of a musical phrase, is revealed through this kind of music. Bach's inventions are the most expert guide for pianists as well as for harpsichordists in their studies. They should learn first how to play and register with precision a two-part piece before attempting more involved polyphonic works. The plan of studies of every keyboardist should include the complete works of Bach in their original version. And to understand Bach better, students should study the works of the great and lesser French, German, Italian, and English masters who were Bach's predecessors, contemporaries, and successors. The characteristics of each school and their reciprocal influences should be taught to them. Only through historical studies will their sense of the style and taste of each epoch be developed. That is unfortunately neglected. Also, it is essential to devote classes to the history and evolution of musical instruments with practical demonstrations. Harpsichordists should learn thoroughly the mechanism and voicing of their instrument. Proper voicing represents a large part of the art of harpsichord playing. That also is too often ignored. Reading the treatises of Quantz on the flute, of Leopold Mozart on the violin, of Tosi Agricola on singing, of François Couperin, Rameau, Frescobaldi, Marpurg, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, and so many others on keyboard playing should be obligatory. At least the teacher would be assured that while busy reading these books, students would skip a few of the hours they otherwise would spend repeating endlessly and brainlessly Czerny's Great Velocity or Kalkbrenner's Exercises for the Independence of the Fourth Finger of the Left Hand. Evidently, the ideal would be to start every music student on this fortifying diet, Nevertheless, I have observed its incredible blessings on pupils who were no longer adolescents, but who had been kept in ignorance of Bach. When these unsuspected marvels are revealed to them, such students react with the greatest enthusiasm because they become conscious of what they had been missing, and one witnesses an outburst of joy, something like the discovery of love. When consciousness has been awakened and chastised by training in counterpoint, note against note, and when it has been under the control of self-criticism, this inured consciousness revolts against aimless sentimentality. It is in that wonderful atmosphere of faith and love, united with analytical and constructive criticism, and animated by the fervent desire to respect the will of the Bachs and of the Couperins, that I work with my pupils. While submitting them to the most Spartan discipline, I also leave room for their individuality. My destiny was to be an educator. I was made to initiate to give public classes illustrated with many examples, to bring together works that nobody would have expected to see juxtaposed.
At no time in my teaching did I ever think of exposing publicly the mistakes of a pupil. Foresight, maternal solicitude, care to prevent troubles, sometimes catastrophe for a student unaccustomed to playing for an audience, such have always been my dominant thoughts. I say to them, do not use the fourth finger in this phrase. Here, lean comfortably on the thumb, breathe at this place, and do not accentuate that beat. Just as I would say, take a walk, breathe through your nose, do not stuff yourself with chocolate. All these manifestations of maternal love have always been the light motive of my teaching. The beautiful hours of work spent with my pupils are those I cherish most. I have the compelling urge to share with them what I have learned and what I think I have discovered. This is an inheritance from my mother. Spontaneous, she was unable to savor fruit or anything else alone. I shall never forget her gesture when she was saying, Taste this apple. She gave it all. I am only a feeble echo of my mother. Is there any merit in sharing? None. When I play a sarabande of Chabonnier, I wish to call out, Come, help me bear this burden of love, this flame. What kills all seeds of taste in a student is to confine him at first to technical studies only. Interpretation is reserved for later. It is like that woman of little virtue who postponed, until she had made a fortune, the luxury of having a real lover. What is of capital importance for a future musician is to be acquainted as early as possible with the ideal sonority that some day he will be able to produce himself. The teacher must emphasize this sonorous vision toward which the student has to direct all his efforts from the moment he puts his hands on the keyboard for the first time. If music were taught this way, the world would not be inhabited by so many monsters whose monstrosity is caused by their lack of consciousness. The task of a teacher is not to work for the pupil nor to oblige him to work, but to show him how to work. Excerpts from a letter by Landowska in 1950 to a former pupil who had come to visit her after a separation of almost ten years and who was stunned to discover the evolution of Landowska's interpretative freedom. I told you that I feel strongly the need to share the fruits of my meditations with those who love and understand me this is probably why my music scores are now covered with annotations and fingerings. But you were far away for so many years. How could I in a single evening make you understand my unending work made up of happiness and of struggles? How could I tell you all that my reading of musicological essays and art criticisms has taught me? Unexpected, unbelievable things, I assure you. You said you were perturbed. Why? Because I improvise a double for a Handel Saraband, inspired by Bach's and Couperin's own double? Examine them closely. See the curves and the inflections of their lines. Follow the life which flows among these eighth and sixteenth notes, and you will understand that what I am doing is the truth. We came to you in search of truth, you said. 
Yes, there are axioms. We have Bach's table of ornaments and those of the French harpsichordists realized by them. But is this all? Is it enough to realize an ornament? Is it not necessary to interpret it? And what about the arpeggios in the chromatic fantasy? They were not realized by Bach. And what about the discretion in Froberger's Plante, which is nothing but an invitation to improvise? And Chambonnier's Sarabande in D minor, to which I have added ornamentation? And Rameau's Dauphine? Rameau improvised it at the Dauphin's wedding. Is that not a hint that we too should improvise when playing it? Truth? Even years ago I revealed a great deal to you, but now let me take off in complete freedom. Do not restrain me in my flight in the name of what I said a decade past during this or that lesson. You have not even attended all my classes. Is it worthy of a disciple to say to me with such accents of reproach and deception, You never told us about the dobla. Did I not share everything with all of you then, as I do today? Do you really think that I ever keep secret the best of my knowledge? But I cannot help it if, having never stopped working, I have learned a great deal, especially about this divine freedom that is to music the air without which it would die. What would you say of a scientist or of a painter who, like stagnant water, would stop his experimentation and remain still? You will wreak havoc, you exclaimed. Do I have to take into consideration non-musical, clumsy people, but, worst of all, pedants who, and this is serious, number my thoughts, label, and file them, although they understand nothing of their spirit, any more than they realize the fury of my ecstasy for music? Was music created for musicologists? Did Bach write for teachers' meetings? The most beautiful thing in the world is precisely the conjunction of learning and inspiration. Oh, the passion for research and the joy of discovery. I followed my vocation and never ceased to work without ever compromising. That is all. Do you realize your responsibility? You said. Responsibility toward whom? Those who understand me will never trouble me. About the others... Alas, they are numerous. I could not care less. Besides, I can explain every one of the liberties I take and prove them, and God knows how much I love to explain. I shall never tire of it. Chef d'école, you called me. I never aspired to that pompous title, which is too narrow for my nature. I beg you to relieve me of it. It would weigh upon me and encircle my head and my heart too tightly. No chef d'école, no vestal chaste and pure. Bacante would suit me better, but one that works hard, zealous as a schoolgirl, trying to understand the letter, fustigating herself to make it sound, and then forgetting everything, books and laws, unleashed, intoxicated with freedom. How to Work if everyone knew how to work, everyone would be a genius. I hate the word practice. Practice breeds inurement. 
Instead of discovering, of distinguishing traits that are deeply hidden or merely veiled, one ends seeing nothing anymore. One ceases to be aware. To be aware, to be conscious in all times, is what appears to me the worthiest in my thoughts and in my work. While interpreting, even at the most impetuous moments when a musical phrase overflows with passion, I want to remain conscious. I may forget a liberty I took at one place or another, but this does not change in any way my state of consciousness, which is always on the alert. Awkwardness and mistakes in playing are always due to a lack of concentration. I attach great importance to concentration because I was born into a family of undisciplined individuals. I had to kick and scold myself. But I believe that I have acquired the faculty of concentrating, and now I can teach it to my pupils. I work best with closed eyes. Only then I see and I hear. How should one start to play? One has to concentrate and be entirely ready so that when the first note is struck, it comes as a sort of continuation of a soliloquy already begun. Too often the value and importance of the start in playing is belittled, and yet all depends on its being carefully prepared. Before I begin a phrase, between the preparatory gesture of the hand or of the finger and the first note, there is an infinitesimal period of time always surprising because of its unpredictable duration and because of its expressive impact. The listener can never anticipate the exact dosage I apply to this rest. The silence preceding a phrase, be it the initial one or not, acts as a background upon which the motive is sketched and set into relief. Breathings and caesuras, especially those that precede a beginning, have a positive value equal to that of the notes themselves. Similarly, the last note is never the last. It is rather a point of departure for something to come. Whistler went out at night, trying to steep himself in the mood of a nocturnal landscape before he attempted painting one. Corot said, after my excursions, I invite my friend Nature to spend a few days under my roof. Once she is there, I give free rein to my imagination. Brush in hand, I start out in the forest of my studio. I hear right there the songs of birds and the murmur of the branches agitated by a ghost wind. A landscape painter should be able to paint a masterpiece representing the countryside without leaving his studio. There is a very close rapport between the preceding examples and the way I work, or rather, let us say, it is the same thing. I consult as many documents as possible. I do my best to understand and assimilate them. Digested and assimilated, they work in me, tracing their own way. I do not think of them any more. I let them act. The more my documentation increases, the more I feel light and free. It is not that I am sure of everything. Who can boast of such a thing? But I have the feeling of being honest, of not cheating, and probably this gives me a quiet confidence. But most of all, I absorb. 
or rather I let myself become permeated by each musical phrase, slowly and for a long time. It is through playing it again and again that this phrase will unveil for me, a little at a time, its expression and its true character. Finally my fingers touch its core, so deeply hidden, I feel it with delight. The more I live with a work and absorb its substance, the more I discover in it new beauties. Then I amplify, augment my interpretation. I feel submerged, carried away by irresistible waves. It is not the successful performance of a piece that counts, but it is this eager and patient struggle, this stubbornness in facing each difficulty that brings an always renewed joy. How wrong it is to say that some pieces are simple. There is no such thing. Everything has to ripen. Some people say, for you it is a trifle. But especially for me, it is more difficult than for anyone else. The more I advance, the more I discover that I know nothing. One must have an immense perseverance and also be philosophical to avoid despair. It is true that I am attempting the absolute, and this absolute often resists me. But I must obtain it, and then will come a divine freedom. One must play for hours and hours in a dimly lit room before one can feel, This is it. I know and I hear what I want to obtain from a piece of music. As long as I cannot obtain it, I shall slave, fight, swear, and say, Happy are those who do not know what they want but I well know that would be a wretched happiness. Sometimes finding a solution for setting in relief a certain phrase demands a complete change of fingering and more work. All the better, as long as it will sound. One must never be afraid to start all over again as many times as it is necessary. I attack even difficult pieces in their definitive tempo without transition, even if this tempo is very fast. I assimilate it, and only later do I work slowly. Is it a search for perfection? No, it is something else. I cannot stand to be disturbed by a technical imperfection or anything that blemishes the realization of my vision. What I fear most is not the worsening of a piece, but its being in a state of stagnation, which is a kind of death. A break is necessary before resuming the course with freshness. Strength is renewed after a rest, but it is a luxury that one can afford only if there is time ahead. To play a phrase with relief and vivacity, and then to perform it nonchalantly, as if one never had to study it, is difficult. There is a great difference between something solidly sewn and something timorously adjusted. One has to dominate matter in a regal way to allow oneself to forget and to make the listener forget the difficulty of a piece. There is a fundamental error in the manner of practicing. It consists in always starting a phrase at its beginning and going up to its end. To know a phrase in all its detail, one must be able to pick it up at any place. As a preparation for this method of practicing, it is essential to write out fingerings to serve as guide marks. 
The same idea can be applied to orchestral parts, in which bowings for the strings and breathings for the winds replace fingerings. Working on overlong phrases, taken always at their beginning, results in being unable to play from memory any part of these phrases. Very often a phrase that had remained hermetic to us will reveal itself when we sing it. What is there in a human voice that makes the heartbeat of a phrase become more understandable and closer to us? At the origin of expression, there is the quality of the sound. Nuances called too lightly minute are truly important and can change completely the expression of a phrase. One can create miracles with a subito piano or a menomoso at places where they are most unexpected. When I begin to dream up a new program, a fever of happiness seizes me. I want that concert to be an extraordinary event as the result of the atmosphere I hope to create. I spin an enchanted thread, a web that must envelop us all. I forget everything, all previous pains and torments, and I start anew. All day, all night I work, and I feel, I always do, that I need many more days and nights to modify retouch, improve, and go deeper into the meaning of the works I play. Oh, the hours of folly, of oblivion, of happiness, my hours of work in the middle of the night. What intoxication it is to play again and again what one loves, to plunge into it. One can postpone writing a letter, but work for a concert? Never. The proper execution of a single ornament is much more important than any business or social activity. It is best to work the most difficult parts in the evening because they will ripen during the night. Observe how much the undiscriminating audience likes the exaggerations of a performer. There are probably two reasons. First, because it facilitates for them the access the understanding of a phrase which otherwise would have meant little to them. Exaggerated retardandi, accentuations, etc., are, in a way, some sort of mask like those worn by Greek actors and so conceived as to be seen even by the spectators seated farthest from the stage. And yet it is in reducing and simplifying exterior gestures that one can intensify the expression. In concerts or any live performance, our impressions are divided between hearing and seeing. Sight receives apart from the ensemble of our sensations. With recordings, however, hearing alone is impressed. How often after my concert some small professional comes to me and asks me to teach him how to play the most showy pieces of my repertoire. It reminds me of some fat and homely little bourgeois who, after seeing a svelte and elegant aristocratic lady, runs to the same dressmaker. She thinks that in wearing the same dress she will acquire the same elegance. It is interesting to observe the various transformations a work undergoes during the lifetime of its performer. Take, for example, the Italian concerto. I learned it first with Michalowski in the Bülow transcription. 
Later I reworked it all by myself at the piano. Then I had to forget everything I did previously and relearn it on the harpsichord. Finally it was in my fingers and in my brain. For many years I played it all over the world. It was my war horse. It became a little worn out in the process. Dust settled on it in addition to a few bad habits contracted during all these travels. We had become an old menage. Its beauty, its contrasts had lost their sharpness. But I had to teach it to a student, and suddenly the work woke up and showed itself under a new and exciting light.' 